0: Welcome back to the second season of Sax Reel. This season is brought to you in part by Key Leaves. Are you suffering from sticky sax keys or striving to keep your instrument healthy? Check out Key Leaves and use the code SaxReal for a special discount at keyleaves.com. That's key like a saxophone key and leaves like leaves keys open to dry. Key Leaves. This week we have another fantastic guest, He is currently on faculty with Oklahoma State University. He's a founding member of the award-winning Amethyst Quartet, and his students have gone on to win many prestigious awards and competitions. I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Johnny Salinas. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for having me. Glad to have you. So I always like to talk a little bit about how you got into saxophone, any interesting stories you had growing up and how that led to where you are now.
1: Sure. So I'm originally from Houston, Texas, and I started saxophone in the sixth grade in 1994. And, uh, but I almost didn't play saxophone right away. You know, in, in uh, Houston, they, they usually will bring you in for an assessment uh, prior to sixth grade. Usually this happens in the summer. And they'll look at your physical traits and, you know, look at your hands, look at your lips and, and whatnot. And uh, my band director at the time really wanted me to play trombone. And of course, I just, when I looked at the instrument, I just thought it was an awkward instrument and I just, there was nothing that that wanted, that was calling my name that like this was the instrument for me, so I begged my teacher to, to put me in the saxophone class, there was just something about the saxophone I wanted, you know, to, to play. And of course she was trying her best to not let me play saxophone so she would say oh it's an expensive instrument, we already have 12 people in the class and and all these things to, to try to you know steer me away from that but I was you know very persistent I was like nope I'm gonna play saxophone and then you know she finally let me into the class. Well, and then came, the, you know, I had to talk to my parents about getting a saxophone. And, you know, I, I grew up in a family of uh, seven, you know, two adults and five kids. I was the, the middle of five kids. And, um, you know, my parents, they didn't know much about music. I, I would have been the first child, like, attempting to do band or anything like that. And so obviously, you know, they didn't, at that time, I think renting an instrument, they were pretty expensive. And, and, and the school was very adamant on getting a Yamaha YAS-23 at the time that was the only instrument she would allow her students to play so uh, my dad without telling me uh, ended up going to the pond, local pawn shop because before this is before eBay before any any of that. Uh, went went to the local pawn shop and um, found a YAS-23 this thing was in rough shape, I mean this was just like not I it must have been someone's marching band instrument and was just obviously pawned at the end of its uh, time in, in high school. And so I, I, you know, I brought it, I brought it to sixth grade, the first day of school, and we all opened up our cases. And the teacher's like, okay, let's, you know, let's start putting it together. And as soon as I brought, I opened it up, one of the classmates next to me was like, "Ooh, what an ugly instrument. And because <laughs> mine was all scratched up. And of course, all the kids in the class started like, laughing and making fun of me and and because everyone else rented from the local store so theirs was brand new mine was like the only pawn shop uh, in the class and so I got teased like the first day of of sixth grade and um I mean I almost I I went home crying I almost like quit band right then and there oh it's so sad Uh, yeah yeah uh, but so it almost didn't happen there's all these these things even early on um and then you know I ended up you know Stuck it out, you know, put put my saxone on together. Eventually, we ended up doing chair tests and the first chair tests I got <laughs> I ended up getting like second to last out of 13. And so I, I, once again, I went home started crying and I was like, Oh, shit with them. And I, you know, started really practicing and for the rest of the school year, I think I always made like top three, first, second or third chair in, in the group. So that's kind of the genesis of, of, you know, I really enjoyed winning because I was, you know, was really into sports. I always felt competitive. So there was always this competitive drive um, with music because it was just something I I felt, uh, you know, comfortable with, Um, you know, so I ended up, you know, doing uh, alto sixth grade. I ended up moving to tenor in the eighth grade. I did so alto sixth grade, seventh grade alto tenor. I did eighth grade. Ninth grade, I moved to baritone saxophone, 10th grade baritone, 11th grade back to alto, and then uh, I think 12th grade, I ended up playing soprano. So by the time I graduated, I had spent uh, high school, I'd spent significant time on all four of the major saxophones, which I I thought was kind of unique. Some people um, don't get that opportunity right away. So I always felt like I... Um, had a good foundation, even going into uh, my undergrad, having spent, you know, significant time on all four instruments. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I, I owe a lot of credit to my, my private lesson teachers. And I ended up studying with Jason Bird, who was a local U- University of Houston uh, graduate, and then eventually studied with Karen Wiley, who was a uh, Fred Hemke student uh, in, from the 1980s. And she was the professor of saxophone at the University of Houston for a long time. Um, and then that's what kind of Paved the way for me to study with Fred Hemke at Northwestern, where I did all my degrees, uh, you know, starting in 2001 and eventually graduating with my doctorate in in 2014. So quite quite a long journey, uh, you know, from Houston all the way to Chicago, to cold, blistering cold Chicago.
0: Oh yeah, I'm sure that's quite the transition.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: but yeah, what was your time like? Oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: Sorry, but on there I forget the. Uh, you know those those early moments uh, in in sixth grade because I I thought it was pretty comical Uh, and looking back on it it was just just kind of a funny funny thing that happened but yeah
0: you definitely started trial by fire and I guess that was a really good thing because I guess it trained you to (laughs) persevere through all that kind of stuff right right so speaking of persevering I'm sure spending that much time in Chicago transitioning to the cold and also just being in college was a difficult transition for most people. I'm assuming it was a little probably challenging for you as well. What were some of the things that you felt like were difficult getting into that atmosphere?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, you know, the weather, um, you know, I would say for me personally, you know, going to a school like Northwestern, um, which, you know, there's a lot of great universities, great institutions. I think Northwestern is a very special place. Um, and I was warned uh, early on by even uh, Karen Wiley, my teacher, that you know you're going to go to a school where you're going to be like the dumbest kid in the class i mean there's just so many brilliant people at that school so i felt like um academically was was a little challenging at first just because i literally was surrounded by people that made 1600s on their sats and you know but i think that was also the beauty of of you know, going to college and you're surrounded by scholars and people that raise your, your level. Um, you know, it was just a fantastic time. I, I think that's why I never really left Northwestern because it was just such a great community of musicians and, and scholars and, and whatnot. But, um, you know, eventually I think I, I caught on and, and my grades did better. I actually, um, I think the hardest part of transition with Western was I was actually a double major at first. Um, and oh, wow. so I, I did engineering and um music my first two years um, that's and that's the another... most time consuming yes <laughs> yes and i and i remember at the end of the second year or i guess it would have been the middle um i remember <laughs> uh, fred Hemke was not pleased with my saxophone playing cuz i was spending too much time on engineering my engineering uh grades were not that great because i was trying to balance between um saxophone and uh, i i remember staying up late one night and and uh, for midterm time. And I, I think I was in Calc 3, Calculus 3 at that time and uh, totally failed the midterm. And I just had to take a, a long look in the mirror and said, you know, what do I really want to do? And and at the time, you know, I, t- you know, talked to a lot of friends and they said, you know, there's, there's many engineers in the world, uh, probably a lot more than, than saxophone is. And, you know, you should really just focus on saxophone, give it a shot. And, and and that's what I did from, from that point on. And then I think my saxophone playing got overall better. My grades got better once I was able just to focus, uh, on music, but there was other, I I think I probably could have done both. Um, but I think I was more passionate at the time with, with saxophone and, and, and music. So I I chose that route route, and haven't regretted it yet. So, (laughs) but uh, it's been, yeah, yeah. But, uh, and uh, obviously, like I said, the cold weather was always thing. But I think I've I got used to it. Now, now coming back down to the south, I I feel like I'm not used to the heat anymore. And so yeah. I know we're currently I think we're recording this in in June of 2021. I mean it's heat waves everywhere. Uh, it's pretty. I think it was 104. Uh, heat oh, index yikes. here in, in in Oklahoma yesterday. So, uh, yeah, it's it's warm. It's definitely warm. <laughs>
0: Of course, you did study with Professor Hemke while you were there. Uh, I heard so many stories about these revelations that people have had with him or fun stories that they've had with him and the interactions that he has with his students. I'm just wondering, were there any that stuck out to you? You know, I would say the, the, the time he kicked me
1: out of his studio was probably one of one of the, one of the, the, the funniest times. He, I would say, at least from what I've heard from, you know, older students, the you know, the, the, the John Sampins, and Deborah Rick Myers, people who studied with him back in the 1980s and early 90s, uh, Fred Hemke was on fire at that time, and he was really uh, tough on his students. I think he was, by the, by the 2000s, uh, early 2000s, I think he was more lenient and, and a little bit more nurturing. Um, mm-hmm. But it seemed like, from my understanding, that he would occasionally, for the for those who he still expected a lot from, he would still, you know, at times um you know i i guess i you know we're, we're very hard on them and i remember one once again i think this is when i was still doing engineering one one lesson in particular uh, when i brought in the wc rhapsody uh and i don't think i spent enough time practicing <laughs> and i totally missed some accidentals on the first page of wc <laughs> rhapsody and i remember he stopped the the uh stopped the lesson he's like he's like, did you even look at this? <laughs> and oh, I was, no. Yeah. And I, and I just, you know, I, I clammed up and I was like, Oh, I can't, I can't do this. And he's like, well, you come back when, when you've practiced this. And he sent me out. And I remember that because I don't think I've ever, I was ever kicked out of a lesson like ever, like my whole time. So, um, and I don't think I've ever kicked out personally, any of my students, but I, I think that moment when, when that happens, you're like, I, you have to really, you know, focus and, and get the job done uh, when that happens. I don't know if you've ever been kicked out of a lesson. So, I haven't, no. Yeah. Thank God, that would be I've terrifying. heard stories. <laughs> I've heard stories.
0: Um, but I've had uh, intense lessons, but I don't think I've yeah, been kicked out of one.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I would say that was more memorable. But, you know, as far as uh, in general, I mean, obviously, we have tons of colleagues that studied with Hemke, and you know, he was just an amazing human being and, and a wonderful person, great saxophonist but overall great musician great historian and great storyteller i mean mm-hmm. just the, the the things he would say um you know about days and clo days and Clo and and you know this is the guy that was there when this piece was was written and we won these awards so i mean he just had all these fantastic stories about obviously marcel mule and his and his time at the paris conservatory and um whatnot but i always felt like You know, this there's a lot of great teachers, but there was there was some sort of connection where you felt there was a lot of authenticity of him being there uh, with all these famous French composers that from the 1950s and 60s and and whatnot. So I I felt very fortunate just to be, you know, in in close proximity with him for for such a long uh, time. Um, You know, his master classes were his studio classes, which were basically a weekly master class. And he was always put on a show. Uh, every week um and and so it always felt like like I was at a NASA conference every every week with this with this man and he always had great I mean he was just so charismatic I think that's actually where he really shined lessons were great with him but I think his his master classes are where um a lot of people would say he was uh you know on on point or just really on fire uh the way the way he taught um Obviously there's always his Hemke bear hugs that he used to do, uh, <laughs> you know, when he always wanted to separate, you know, the fingers from, from the air that was always, always fun to watch him do that. Um, and uh, I think he, <laughs> he the, may have done it. Yeah,
0: for the people who don't know what that is, basically the, sometimes if you're getting distracted by their fingers, your air support's not there. So what he would do is he would get behind you and he was a very tall man. So yes. he would reach around and play the saxophone and you were supposed to blow. So they call it the Hemke Bear, just because yeah. he's such a massive person. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and, and pedagogically, obviously, that was a great um, exercise and great tool just to make you realize, uh, you know, what you were doing wrong and mm-hmm. as far as your phrasing goes. And, um, but yeah, and, and like I said, I, I could go on. I'm sure there's other other things I'm missing. Um, but, uh, you know, I wish I – w- I, I miss him, obviously, because he's mm-hmm. been gone for a few years now. I wish wish – you always have regrets that you wish I – could have called him one last time just to have one one talk with him or one email, um, you know. But you know that's that's life. We have to really you know take advantage of our our friends, our mentors, and our colleagues while while they're there because you just you never know. You never know when definitely when the, when the time comes.
0: And now for a word from our other sponsor, Consistency Wins. Consistency Wins was established in two thousand and two by Jonathan Cathell, who has over thirty years of experience working as an instrument technician. Aside from Jonathan Cathel, there are three other amazing technicians that work there. Jeremy Hill, Alex Singleton, and Courtney Christensen. All four technicians specialize in high-end setups and modifications. One thing that I really genuinely appreciate about Consistency Wins is that I know that they're not doing this just to gouge me for money. They're doing this because they genuinely love the instrument and they love making sure that we understand what they're doing. Consistency Wins doesn't use any gimmicky repair materials as a means to lure it in musicians. Instead, they focus on how the instrument should properly function and provide helpful, myth-proof, tried, and tested information. This encourages less visits to the repair shop through the long-lasting services they provide. So if your instrument is out of repair and you're looking for someone who you can trust to do quality work, make sure you go to Consistency Wins. That's consistent, the letter C, wins. Since you did spend all three degrees at Northwestern, was there ever a point where... I don't know, you faced a burnout of sorts at Northwestern? Because I know some people can only do a certain amount of time at a certain place and then they kind of have to move on. What was that like for you? Were you just sure that you wanted to stay there for all three degrees?
1: Actually not. I mean, I I was... I think I I applied for the master's in 2005, uh, after I would graduated. And I think what was appealing at the time, I don't think they do it anymore. But they had a one year master's degree at at, Mm -hmm. at Northwestern. So I was like, Oh, yeah, you know, being lazy. It's like, I'm here already. You know, I have rapport with my teacher, why not just stay for that fifth year and and get the master's done, Um, which I did. And but in hindsight, I wish I had because it ended up being the most expensive year uh, oh, for no. financially <laughs> goes. Well, yeah, I, the financial aid and just, you know, money in, in general yeah. is different, obviously, from undergrad to master's to, to doctorate. Um, and so I think that that was a costly master's year. Um, and, you know, that's lesson learned. Um, I Like I said, I think I was just very comfortable. Now, I did, I did apply uh, between my master's and my doctorate in 2006 to go study with Arnold Bornkamp. Uh, mm. In Amsterdam, uh, I had won a grant with the BB Fund, uh, which is based out of Boston. I, I think that program still exists. I, I'm not sure, but um, it was very similar to like a Fulbright, where but but this was more performance based. You would go and audition, uh, and if you were the the winner, um, they would give you a grant, usually like fifteen thousand to go study. Oh wow! Wherever wherever in the world that you applied, uh, and I think I applied to go study with with Honor Born I actually went over. Uh, spent two weeks in Amsterdam. Um, but you know, things happen. It just didn't work out. Um, and I ended up having to come back and study with, uh, and, and came back. And then Dr. Hempke was like, well, let's just go ahead and start your, your doctorate and and, and kind of just pushed me towards that. And, um, and you know, like I said, I think it was a comfort thing in, in hindsight. And I tell, and I tell this to all my students, I'm like, try your best to go somewhere else just to get a different perspective. Um, but once again, it was the, it was Northwestern. It was just a great place. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, and I'm, like I said, I'm sure other uh, Northwestern alums can, can vouch that there's a lot of special schools in Northwestern, which is one I just I couldn't get away. I couldn't quit Northwestern until I, <laughs> until I couldn't uh, get any more degrees. Um, but like I said, I think there was a lot of great institutions that I should have looked at. Um, but, knowing my personality, I just kind of went with the most convenient thing it was sticking around uh, Evanston.
0: So transitioning out of your time in school, and I, I'm almost at that point. Now I have one more year left in my doctorates. But I'm just curious, what was that transition like getting out of school looking for that job?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's kind of, kind of weird, because I, I graduated so late, um, I actually could have graduated as early as 2008. I was done with coursework at that time. Um, but I kept putting on the my, my dissertation. I kept putting it off, you know, so one year passed and I was like, oh, I'll write it next year. I'll just te- keep teaching privately until the next big job opens up, um, you know, and then eventually in 2010. I had an opportunity to, to take my first visiting position. Uh, Dr. Nathan Nav ended up leaving Moorhead State University to go take his, uh, his new position at uh, Stephen F. Austin. Um, and he asked me to apply for his, the visiting pos- position. I did and, and got it, so I moved from Chicago uh, to Kentucky for that year. Um, it was a wonderful year, lots of ups and downs, um, and felt very fortunate to, to get there. When the time came to apply for the position full time, I didn't even get an interview. Unfortunately, and oh, I was geez. shocked. Yeah, I I thought I would at least get an interview, but at that time, um, there was just so many uh, candidates with their uh, either the uh, DMA or what is it the the Alba done the ABD uh, or you know or have the doctorate in hand. I just, I wasn't even considered as, as well as I did there. And as, as much as the students like me, I just didn't even have the opportunity. The administration Jeez. wanted someone with a, pretty much with a doctorate in hand. Um, and so my, my close colleague, Masihitu Sighari ended up winning that position, uh, which makes, I mean, we have almost the same credentials. He's older than me, fantastic player. It made sense at the time, but I think at that time I had to take a long look in the mirror. I was like, I got to get this dissertation done, you know, because I don't want to miss an opportunity uh, like that again. Um, And, and I thought, oh, it'd be a quick, you know, I'll finish it in a year. Well, it took another four years to still finish. (laughs) And and I think a lot of that was was Hemke. Once again, Um, I had to switch topics a couple times. Initially, I was going to do something on uh, tuning tendencies and altissimo stuff. But, you know, I felt very self-conscious about that. I, I never felt, and even to this day, I'm not, I, I play altissimo very well, but I don't come from a background where that is um, maybe my strong side. Uh, I, you know, I think people maybe who studied under the the Sinta lineage, the Rousseau lineage, May have better insight on that, and I always felt like I'd have to do a lot of research and just to to, to be in a field because this is this is I'm putting a document that's supposed to be new research and something, and so we ended up toying with with uh, ideas, and eventually, you know, Hemke was like, mm, "Why don't you do the history of saxophone in Mexico?" I was like, "You're Mexican." I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, yeah, <laughs> I am. I don't speak any Spanish really, um, you know." So I, I thought always scared to do this topic. But he's like, you know, if you don't do it, who else will, you know, and that was, that was the idea. So I was like, well, I guess I can bone up on, on Spanish and, and, and do that. So, so then I think in 2011, I started, you know, writing towards that dissertation, and it just, it took a while. I mean, there's, and I, that's a whole nother topic of, you know, going over my research, but, you know, it just, it, it was, it was very time consuming, very difficult. Uh, and then like life things happen. Uh, you know, my, my fiance at the time uh, she and I found out we were expecting our first child um, and so that also you know put me behind a little bit in writing the dis- the, the dissertation uh, you know and so eventually finally after you know lots of pains and heartache I finally finished it finally graduated in 2014 um, so yeah so I started the degree in 2006 finished 2014 so that's quite a long time to, to, to take on uh, to, to finish the DMA. So I always tell my students, if you're going to do it, you know, start researching topics, even like in coursework the first two years. So that way you can get hit the ground running with a topic, with the dissertation. And, um, you know, and so from that point on, once that happened, like, you know, maybe things just just kind of <laughs> fell in my lap. Uh, there, there was a job posting in one of the local online uh, sources, I think it was musicalchairs.net, or org. I can't remember, um, and they had a job for a Saxon position in China. And I said, "Well, I'm, you know, why not? You know." So I I applied kind of jokingly, like, "Oh, they'll they'll never hire me, or you know, whatever." And um, I think I sent, and I actually sent the application in late. I think that was the application was due like November one, and I didn't even see it until the following week. And so I still sent something in. Um, didn't hear anything for like two months. And then on new year's Eve of all days, I get an email from China that they would like to, you know, continue with the search with me and have a, a zoom or Skype interview. Um, and so I ended up doing that in sometime in January, I actually did that, which is weird. I was actually in Oklahoma state, uh, playing with Jeff Leffert and H2 and, and at a, one of their I think they, they did like a saxophone like day um, in January of that year. So I was in close to my current office doing an interview for a position in China um, and ended up the, you know, the, the interview went really well um, moved on to the next phase ended up, they invited me to China in April of 2015, which once again, if you've ever been to China uh, I mean, it's, it's just a whole nother world and just, to totally different clashes of you know of uh, cultures and and whatnot so I mean it was it was a crazy experience just having to go through the interview process and in, in a country where you don't speak the language um, I was at times it was wasn't even sure if I could even do this um, just <laughs> it was gonna be such I I didn't know if I had to teach in Chinese I had no idea what what was gonna happen but I just you know just kept playing my best doing what I can uh, you know teach the as best as I could at the time. And you know, one thing after another, they offered me the position, and then came the crazy part of you know packing up my life from the United States and moving to China, which I basically had to sell everything as much as I could and downsize, uh, so that my wife and my and my daughter, all three of us, moved to China. Um, and I and honestly, I don't think that would have happened if if it wasn't for my wife, who was so understanding, and she quit her job. She had a nice job in Houston. Um, at that time. And she was like, yeah, you know, who, how many, uh, you know, people get this opportunity to go follow their dreams and go teach saxophone on the other side of the world in China. So we did. So none of that would have been possible without my loving wife and and my daughter at the time. And and also my family who supported me and just said, hey, why not just go for it and see what happens? And I would say my my time in China was an amazing experience. I, I, I miss it all the time I think about it but i mean it was it was uh and and like i said i can go into long stories about that but i would say for me personally living in china teaching china it was an extremely positive experience and just learned so much about the culture Long, i would say if anything yeah i was brought there to teach saxophone but i felt i actually learned more by going there like i was the student in, in so many ways and like i said it was just such a, a meaningful experience
0: there's so many things about that that are awesome. I feel like the first question that popped into my mind was, how does your wife take that? And that's amazing that she was so supportive and just was so willing to move. Oh, Yeah. And,
1: you know, like, I think a lot of saxophonists, a lot of musicians, I think a lot of us are well-traveled. I mean, there was conferences, people go to the World Saxophone Conference. I think my first trip was because of saxophone. I went to Norway, to so the Fred Hemke camp that he used to hold uh, every summer in, in Trondheim, Norway. You know that was the first trip i did i did that with with masahito sigihara and nathan nab and a bunch of northwestern people and i can't remember the date that was like mid 2000s but you know i went there and in, in a couple other places i went to france and uh at one summer i went to study with a few people over there so as saxophone as we've traveled and some of us have the opportunity to leave the states my wife had never left the states other than going to mexico you know, she was like literally picking stuff up and moving to a country she'd never been to. She'd never been on a plane that long. A big transition. Uh, big, big transition. So, I mean, she's so cool just to, you know, take that chance with me. Um, I had went over there for the interview. She never went over, you know, so mm-hmm. it was interesting. And I, and I think a lot of us out there, these upcoming musicians, we, have, we all have wives, we all have significant others and spouses. And so it's, it's tricky. You know, you have to find someone special that, can huh, compromise between you know your dreams and their dreams and and I think Monica was totally a team player in, in that yeah. regard. Yeah.
0: I love that. Yeah. Since since I grew up in China, I know a lot about it. But I'm just wondering what was your experience like with the culture shock and maybe like what was the differences in how students reacted to your teaching versus your American students, maybe.
1: Yeah. I would say the the initial shock was the language. Um, and, and I would say that is you go to some countries and yeah, a lot of other Western countries, they can, some of people can speak a little English, but I would say once I got to China, like very few, at least the parts I were in spoke, spoke any English. So I really felt at times very isolated and just couldn't communicate at all, especially the first, um, you know, few weeks there, if it wasn't for, you know, the, the staff at, uh, the Suzhou university. Um, They were so accommodating just to help us get through the process, but even even getting off the plane getting to a taxi was such a big ordeal (laughs) getting you know just and once again it's just the 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 language barrier, Um, but once you know a little bit it makes it takes a a lot of the stress uh, out of the equation. Um, You know, as far as other things shocking. um, Just trying i'm sure I have some and it's weird because maybe. um, the longer I was there, less I became desensitized. So maybe what was shocking early on was not quite as shocking. I was like, oh yeah, that's just, you know, a little kid peeing on the, the subway, you know, or whatever. Really normal. You know, yep. <laughs> yeah. normal. And, and, and you know, if, for those of you who don't like the, the children in China get potty trained very young. And so it's very custom and very common that you'll see like a, like an IE or, or a grandmother with her Chinese just, kind of whip you know whip off the uh the pajamas or whatever they're wearing and they just pee in the middle of the street um you know this is kind of a weird weird thing so yeah public urination uh was was kind of weird at first but maybe after a (laughs) while it's just not 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 that big of a deal obviously the cuisine was um there's such a me at first always seems a little weird but over time you just realize like the beauty of all the delicious few foods. That's what I miss the most. (laughs) I miss the most. I mean, you just people, if you haven't gone, just, you have no idea of just the, the difference in quality of food and the very delicious food. I mean, just unbelievable. And as far as the teaching goes, you know, I just did actually, I would say a lot of the students felt, thought I was too, too nice. And I actually, that's Mm. been my biggest criticism of, of my teaching. even, here at Oklahoma state or anywhere I've been is, Oh, Dr. Salinas is just too nice. He,
0: he never, he <laughs> never
1: gets mad at anyone. And I don't know, maybe that's just my personality. I'm, I'm more of a nurturer than, than an enforcer. But, you know, I think a lot of Chinese teachers are very strict um, and, very. and the way, the way they brought up. And so I think that was a big shock from <laughs> when, when the student would mess up, he would have, have his head down. Like, he know, he's going to get it, but I never, you know, I just acted on it or sent them out of the room. I, you know, I just always stay positive and just work with them just to see what we can do better. When I first got there, I felt like the, the, the level of saxophone playing overall was, was quite low compared to other parts of the world. But I think o- over time, I think it's, it's gotten a lot better. And, and, and in the last, even the last three, four or five years. And, and I say that is just a lot of young Chinese saxophone teachers may have gone and studied in the States may have gone to study in, in France and they are now at, at this time returning to China. And, and I think the level is just like exponentially getting better over there um, to the point where, I mean, the very um, competitive and very, just very, you know, they, 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 they're, I would say that the quality is not much less than, than, than other parts of the world at, at this time um, and will only continue to get better, I think over, over the years.
0: So I'd love to continue talking about this because there's so much other things that I think would be interesting to talk about. But we are starting to run out of time, and I do want to spend mm-hmm. a little bit of time highlighting you and the future projects that you may be working on right now. So, is there anything that we can look forward to in your career? Well,
1: I, I'm I'm current I'm currently one of the hosts for the next NASA uh, conference. Oh wow! So yeah, so we'll be hosting the the national conference uh, uh, here in Stillwater, Oklahoma, uh, next March, 2022. Um, and actually, that, that kind of fell in my lap once again, because my, my predecessor, Jeff Leffert, uh, who is now you know, a close friend and is now my boss, kind of threw this on my lap and said, oh, you know, we're, we're hosting it. Good luck. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And, oh, and great. Thank you yeah, so much. <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, NASA has the executive committee and they have a lot of supporting people mm. um, and, and people have done it already. So they've, they've kind of helped guide me along the way. and. And um, hopefully we'll have a a great conference uh, next March and we'll be the first conference post COVID. Uh, Hopefully I didn't say post COVID. I know a lot of places are still, um, you know, still going through it. Um, But hopefully I think, I think we'll have a a, a good and safe conference uh, next year. Um, In the meantime, I, lately I, I've been doing quite a bit of chamber music uh, lately. Um, I I've been, we kind of have a faculty win quintet, Quartet here. Uh, We just recorded a new piece by actually a a former student who is now going to be studying composition at Florida State, uh, Matthew Howe, who wrote a a piece for four for flute, oboe, clarinet, alto saxophone. Really neat piece, and and I think we're going to be premiering that uh, this summer virtually, but then also in the fall at a couple um, local conferences uh, around the area. You know, so that's that's kind of kept me busy. Obviously, being a dad, uh, you know, my kids are full time job right there. Full time yeah. <laughs> job. I mean, it's it really is. I'm trying to think what else, but as far as that, I'll be teaching at the Great Plains uh, uh, workshop this summer, um, and so I've been fortunate enough since since I'm here, I'll be teaching uh, there. Uh, in person. I know they're doing a hybrid format and there's some other teachers that are teaching online as well. So looking forward to that, it'll be a good hang with some uh, with with the students and and other faculty that'll be there. And I think that's all I have at least going on currently right now Mm -hmm. uh, for me.
0: Well, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you. I really liked hearing about your experiences in China since I've had that shared experience. And I hope all the best for you and your students and staying safe over the summer.
1: Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you again, uh, Jonathan, for having me. This is an awesome podcast and I've enjoyed listening to it personally and will continue to listening uh, to future episodes as well.
0: Thanks for listening.